Thank you, Brother Dave. Thank you, Julie, for playing. Uh, as I was standing out there this morning uh, uh, during the worship time, uh, I was telling somebody that, you know, the music coming through from here, I could hear it so well at the back. I could pick out people's sounds, so keep on singing, brothers and sisters. Keep on singing. It's, it's a blessing, okay? Uh, this morning, as I uh, come, to, come to you and uh, speak, the, uh, the things that I've uh, brought up here is really what is called, I call practical lessons from the Old Testament, okay? Just practical lessons from the Old Testament. That's the title I've given it. After much thinking and consternation, I decided I'll just shorten it to that. <clears throat> now, the corpus of the Bible consists of Old Testament and New Testament, right? So have you ever wondered why the Old Testament is included there with the New Testament? If the latter is more important in our Christian life and our practice of Christianity. Now this was a question that pervaded my thinking as a teenager. And here I am, decades later, talking about it. I'm willing, I was willing to accept the 27 books that comprise the New Testament and add in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Now don't get me wrong, I absolutely cherish the stories in the Old Testament. Can you imagine missing out on the stories of Joseph or David killing Goliath, or Daniel in the lion's den? Now, over time, I've come to realize that God has a very specific purpose in putting the Old Testament in together with the New. Now, the Old Testament is mostly a history of Israel. God has set Israel out as an example for us. So what I intend to, to explore today is to look at how God deals with a few individuals that we read about in the Old Testament and, it, and its application to my life as a Christian. So as you sit here this morning or listen in on Zoom, my prayer is that this question will engage your mind, that through your own study, you will come to recognize and appreciate the riches of God's mercy and his pursuit of people through the course of human history. With that, let's look at, to the Lord for her, his blessing on us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you as inadequate people. We come to you as broken people. Father, we have so many needs. We have so many uh, uh, shortcomings. We pray, Father, that this morning you would minister to us as you have to people all throughout the scriptures. Open our eyes and ears to what you have to say, we pray. We pray for your blessing on each one of us, for the words you have given me. We pray that it would awaken each one of us to, you, to what you have to say. We ask for your blessing on us this day, in Jesus' name, amen. So the question is, do the stories in the Old Testament have a bearing on my life in 2021. So put on your thinking cap and come with me as I explore the question that through a series of Old Testament stories, 
we will have to reckon with minutia sometimes. It is by no means exhaustive, okay? I hope that you will start a conversation with yourself as to the merits or demerits of the history of Israel, the stories that you read about its people, and how that relates or can transform our thinking and our life. The first one I title, or the, uh, the, the first thing I talk about is the call to a journey of faith and obedience. Now, God called Abraham out of Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. He was a Chaldean. There's nothing in his background or his civic status or his ethnic makeup that distinguishes Abraham above the rest. Neither his riches or lack of it, his style or stature in the community, nothing of that was what attracted God to Abraham. The one and only thing we know about him is that when God called, Abraham listened. Abraham listened. Similarly, I think all of us would agree that we are unworthy of God's redeeming grace. He has chosen us in spite of ourselves. We did not deserve anything, yet God has come by our side. He, God says, come my son, come my daughter, come with me on a journey of faith. God sent Abraham on a long journey without telling him his eventual destination. Along the way, we see that in the Old Testament that Abraham had opportunities to shine, but he also had opportunities to fail. In all of his life, God never, never left Abraham. At times, Abraham felt he had to help God. Now, because of a severe famine in the land of Canaan, Abraham and his family moved to Egypt. He hides the fact that Sarah is his wife in a vain attempt to protect his life from Pharaoh. Now Genesis chapter 12 tells us that Pharaoh gave Abraham many gifts because of Sarah and took her to his palace. God had to intervene in Pharaoh's life because Abraham totally messed up. God takes his failure and turns it into a learning experience for Abraham and also for Pharaoh. So here we find, in spite of the failure to tell the truth, God rescues Abraham. And as a bonus, he makes him materially richer. But did Abraham learn his lesson? The answer is a definite no. We see him repeating the same mistake with King Abimelech of Gerar. Here again, God had to intervene to rescue Sarah and in the process made Abraham wealthier with even more cattle and a thousand pieces of silver. What does this tell us? See, most of us want to live a Christian life. 
but we want to be in control of how it happens. We feel that we need to define it in a certain way. See, in the New Testament, as you look at the early life of the disciples, we see them gunning for a showdown with the Roman authorities. They wanted Jesus to use his power to win a military victory, thereby it would bring power to, to the Jews and also to God. They thought that all was lost, but on that fateful day, Jesus died on the cross. They were not brave enough because they gathered together hopelessly lost. In, a, in the upper room, they were covered in misery. They were hiding. God sent them a few women to tell them the good news that Christ had risen. What a difference that made. See, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit came on them. And these 12 disciples, these 12 disciples, the very ones who were hiding, changed the world. I need to ask myself, am I trying to help God in justifying my action? The other learning I have is God blesses others through you. God blesses others through you, both Christians and non-Christians alike. See, as we read through the Old Testament, we are confronted with a colorful story of an Israelite named Joseph, who became a blessing to a foreign nation, a foreign nation, namely Egypt. Have you ever asked the question as to why God would take Joseph from his family at a very young age and transport him to a position of being the second highest official in the land of Egypt? But that journey was not easy. He was despised by his own brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of doing wrong, and thrown into prison. Now, instead of sulking in the corner of his cell and keeping away from the other prisoners and being depressed at his plight, Joseph decided that he was going to be a bright light within those dark prison walls. We see him engaging other prisoners, getting to know their life stories. There is no doubt that everyone in the prison knew Joseph. The prison warden takes note of it and assigns Joseph some added responsibilities. The Bible tells us that God was with Joseph. Joseph made a conscious decision to bloom where he was planted. See, the scripture does not tell us how long Joseph was in that prison. But one day he was told by the guards to clean up, shave, change into new clothing, because he was going to meet the ruler of Israel. Oh, sorry, the ruler of Egypt. God had prepared him for a new career and gave him the wisdom to lead a nation through a period of abundance and a period of famine, extreme famine. Now, if you are a student of management, you'll be aware that the two require vastly different skills. 
the skills needed to be a CEO of, to lead a company or an institution through a period of growth is very different from leading it through a period of decline. God gave Joseph the wisdom and skills at the right time to bring deliverance to the nation of Egypt. Joseph's actions were also a blessing to the nations around Egypt, and in particular, to his own family too. Now contrast that to the actions of the prophet Jonah. Now these are all stories you and I have read, right? There's nothing new here. God tells him to go to the people of Nineveh with a message. Jonah decides to disobey God. But God is still kind to Jonah and working on him. Jonah must have been a pathetic looking figure as he emerged from the belly of the fish, covered with half-digested seaweed and bathed in vomit. Here he was, looking like that, delivering God's message to the Ninevites. But Jonah is depressed. He's depressed because God did not act to destroy Nineveh as he prophesied. Jonah was angry at God because it hurt his reputation. Why would God want to spare the sworn enemies of Israel? Doesn't God know? See, God is interested in saving people. He is not captive to our ethnic boundaries that we draw. God says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The third lesson I've learned is saying, I'm not capable. I'm not capable. I give excuses, excuses, excuses. We are, all, we are all capable of doing that. Now as I read through the scriptures, we come to recognize Moses as a great leader of the people of Israel. However, I have not seen anyone who gave more excuses than Moses. In Exodus chapter three, we see Moses talking to God at the site of the burning bush. God was commissioning Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses considered this an impossible task. Here are some of the excuses he gave. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? God, who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God, you know, if I go and tell the people of Israel that the God of these, their ancestors has sent me, they will ask, what is his name? What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? All excuses. Now at this juncture, after his fifth excuse, God says, you know, let me give you some signs. You know the shepherd's staff you have in your hand? Throw it on the ground. 
It became a snake. Moses, put your hand in your cloak. Pull it out. It's white as snow. Moses, take some water from the river Nile. Pour it out. It will turn to blood on the ground. Now, after seeing all that, you should be convinced. No. Moses then comes up with some brilliant ones. Oh, Lord, I am not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now, even though you have spoken to me. I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. God wasn't hearing anymore. Then, then Moses says, Lord, please send someone else. Yet, God is patient with Moses in answering and dismantling all his excuses. He allows Moses to bring his brother Aaron as a spokesperson and then commands him to take his shepherd's staff with him to perform those miraculous signs. Now, this simple shepherd's staff, which was used to prod and guide the flock of sheep, was used as a tool in God's hand to guide the people of Israel out of Egypt and to the promised land. We see the staff in use, performing miracles before the king of Egypt. I'm sure that among the Israelites, there were some naysayers that did not believe Moses or that God would be able to rescue them from the powerful Egyptian army. They have been, may have been influenced by other vocal groups within their community. But by the time of the ninth plague, those numbers had crumbled. But the tenth plague was a game changer with serious consequences. When the angel passed over the land, if there was blood on the doorpost, the old, if there was no blood on the doorpost, the oldest son in the family died. Death entered the house. Later we see Moses lifting up the staff and the waters parting at the Red Sea. We see its use in providing water for sustaining the thirsty Israelites as he led them through the desert. See, it's easy to fill our lives with excuses. We gravitate to the cannot tree because we like the ripe fruit and it's easier to pick. See, doing something means challenging expectations of yourself and others' expectations about you. Doing something means challenging expectations of yourself and others' expectations about you. With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. The next learning I had was, don't ignore the small package. Don't ignore the small package. The people of Israel wanted a king like all the nations around them. So God gave them Saul. Now Saul was a tall, and handsome man who stood head and shoulders above the rest. He became king when he was 30, and the Bible tells us that he ruled for 42 years. He was the pride of his people, 
and an able commander. Unfortunately, Saul was all about himself. He was most interested in doing what he thought was right to protect his reputation instead of obeying the prophet Samuel and what he said. Now, in spite of his long reign as king, God had set him aside. So God asked Samuel to go to the house of Jesse. Samuel is there to meet the family. Now let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 through 13. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 6 to 13. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. You can listen to it. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and brought and thought, Surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. In this way, Samuel went through seven of Jesse's sons. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Oh, there is still the youngest, Jesse replied. He is out in the fields watching the sheep and goat. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, the Bible says. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. See, here we can see how we as people make decisions or jump to conclusions. We make judgments based on our biases or outward appearances. The Bible does not whitewash things nor sweep it under the carpet. Even the prophet Samuel had his own bias. Here in this case, we see that even godly ones can make wrong judgment. Shortly afterwards, the Philistine giant Goliath was challenging the best of Israel to a fight. Instead of responding to the challenge with valor, the people of Israel were shivering in their shoes. The logical person to respond to this challenge may have been Saul himself. He was the tallest, experienced, and best equipped. So he should have been out there responding to the challenger. Instead, we see God's timing. In Jesse sending his son David to the front lines with provisions for his brothers. After curing the boastful challenges of the Philistine giant, the Holy Spirit works in David to rise to the occasion. He seeks Saul's, King Saul's permission. The king does the logical thing by giving David his armor. But it's too heavy to be of any use to David. In fact, it would only slow him down. Instead, we see David going to the stream nearby and picking up five smooth stones. 
as he walks towards Goliath, who is taunting him at this time, David reaches in his pocket for one stone. He puts it in the sling, launches it in the air with all his might at the well-fortified unarmed giant. The tiny stone hits the giant in the one critical spot that was left unprotected by armor. David could not believe his eyes when he saw Goliath fall to the ground. See, the army of Israel routed the Philistines that day. God had given them the victory. But Saul was an unhappy man. Saul was an unhappy man because the women of Israel sang the praises of David. See, that day a shepherd boy who was but a lad showed more bravery and skill than the seasoned warriors of Israel. God was with David. The lesson to learn is, when God is with us, who can be against us? When God is with us, who can be against us? Remember that all our inadequacies melt away when God is on our side. All our inadequacies melt away when God is on our side. The next learning I have is, see, God can take our mistakes and turn it into brilliant success. God can take our mistakes and turn it into brilliant success. As we roam through the pages of scripture, we see David seeking shelter among the sworn enemies of Israel. When David killed Goliath, he was but 16 or 17 years old. He only became king when he was 30. During that interim period, he was seen as a musician in Saul's court, a successful commander of Saul's army, and also the king's son-in-law. However, Saul was out to kill him because he knew he was the Lord's anointed. Saul made multiple attempts on David's life. The Holy Spirit gave David the speed and the reflexes to avoid Saul's javelin. God also gave him Saul's daughter Michael and son Jonathan as friends in planning escapes. But how long could David keep running? So David makes a strategic and brilliant decision in his attempt to bring peace into his life. In 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, it reads, But David kept thinking to himself, Someday Saul is going to get me. The best thing I can do is to escape to the Philistines. Then Saul will stop hunting for me in Israel territory. I will finally be safe. Brilliant plan. So David and his men gathered with their families and go and join Achish, king of Gath. Achish gave him the town of Ziglag to live. And there, it says, David lived with his followers for a year and four months. Now in scripture, it does not say that David asked the Lord whether he should go and seek Achish's protection. It doesn't say that. 
We see soon that the Philistines were preparing to go to war against Israel. So Achish tells David and his men that they were expected to join him in battle against Israel. Achish even makes David his personal bodyguard. Think about this for a minute. The future anointed king of Israel is working as a bodyguard for the Philistine king as he goes into battle against Israel. David had a dilemma. He now has to battle his own people. How is he going to explain this? As the story unfolds, we see that the Philistine commanders were very unhappy with this arrangement. You pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 6. So Achish finally summoned David and said to him, I swear by the Lord that you have been a trustworthy ally. I think you should go with me into battle, for I have never found a single flaw in you from the day you arrived until today. But the other Philistine rulers won't hear of it. Please don't upset them, but go back quietly. So David says, what have I done to deserve this treatment? David demanded. What have you found in your servant that I can't go and fight the enemies of my lord the king? But Akish insisted, as far as I am concerned, you are as perfect as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders are afraid of having you with them in battle. Now get up early in the morning and leave with your men as soon as it is light. See, we see God extricating David and his men from a difficult situation of their own making. God saved David from having to fight against his own people. You know what the bonus is? See, David won every battle he fought against the Philistines. David and his men sat out this battle. Israel was soundly defeated. Saul and Jonathan died in this battle, paving the way for David to be crowned king of Judah first and later of all of Israel. See, it gives new meaning to the words that David wrote in Psalm 23. Even when I walk to the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessing. Surely, your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So here are a few things I've learned from the Old Testament. We have looked at a few stories, and I hope they fertilize your faith and help it grow. Let me go over them again. Each one of us are called to a journey of faith and obedience. God blesses others through you, 
Christians and non-Christians alike. I'm not capable. Excuses, excuses. Don't ignore the small packages. God can take your mistakes and turn it into brilliant success. See, in the streams of living water, God provides us smooth stones. Our job is to pick it up and put it in our pocket. God will help us to reach in and pull out the right one to slay the giants in our life. See, over the last few weeks, we here at the chapel have heard from others about the impact of the Bible on people. We heard from Mike and Gay Marksness about the translation work in the Awe language. Members of this tribe were afraid of darkness and the spirit world. They were transformed because of the light of the word of God and were being educated to read and write in their own language. We heard last Wednesday from Jim Fleming about the Emmaus correspondence course that is used around the world, particularly behind prison walls and in refugee camps, bringing hope to their lives. We hear him talking about the newly created app that allows everyone with a mobile phone to take courses and read the actual scripture passage. See, the words written in the Bible is essential for life, for hope, and for liberty. For life, for hope, and for liberty. I was given a book a couple of years ago when uh, Joyce and I were visiting India. And I put it on my shelf for many years. So this summer, I had the opportunity to open it and read through it. It's a thick book. So in his thesis entitled, Let There Be India, Dr. Babu K. Wargis outlines the impact of the Bible on Indian nation building. As a journalist and linguist, he explores the outsized impact of the missionaries in democratizing education. This in turn led to the governance and social changes that created modern India. Among many other stories, the story of William Carey is woven through its pages. At age 16, William Carey was apprenticed to a shoemaker, and there he labored for 12 years. Through a fellow apprentice, William Carey was introduced to the grace of God and had a transforming spiritual experience. He began to read the Bible and convinced of his sin, established a personal, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So while working as a cobbler, he gave himself to study. He had a genius for languages. He learned Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Dutch, French, and Italian. In 1785, he became a Baptist minister of a small congregation. But he had to supplement his income by also becoming a schoolmaster. It is here, while teaching geography, that the missionary motive became his irresistible passion. In 1793, Carey was appointed missionary 
and soon he set his sights on India. However, the directors of the East India Company, which controlled India at that time, were firm in their refusal to grant a license to any missionary applicant. See, the British government did not want missionaries to educate or bring light and freedom to the people. Education would make it difficult for them to control the masses. So without a license, it was illegal to land in India. But William Carey, together with his wife Dorothy, their four children, and also Dorothy's sister Catherine, set sail on a Danish ship that was bound for India. See, after a five-month voyage, they arrived in, in Bengal, which is uh, where Calcutta is, in India, on the 7th November, 1793. But there was a serious problem. The government has issued a an order compelling the captain of every vessel coming to India to state if every person coming ashore had a license to enter the country. So in this case, the captain simply transferred Kerry together with all his possessions to a small boat before he sailed it, sailed into the harbor. Thus, one could say that William Carey and company landed in Calcutta on November 11th, 1793 as illegals. They, of course, ran into a lot of difficulty to sustain themselves. And William took up a job in an indigo factory. Additionally, sickness took a toll on them. His younger son, uh, younger son died and his wife became seriously ill. In spite of that difficulty, Carey plowed ahead. William Carey devoted one third of his day to the study of Sanskrit. There he also learned Bengali, which is the local language, and over the course of six years, translated the New Testament. The year, in the year 1793, sorry, 99, that was a decisive year. This is when Carey decided to, to purchase a second-hand printing press. He tried to influence the British Governor General to allow the missionaries to set up a press. The request was denied outright. After six years of uncertainty about their living condition and having to be on a constant move, the Dutch district of Sebampore welcomed them. See, the Dutch had purchased this district, which is the middle of Bengal, from a king, from a Bengali king in 1755. And here, Colonel B, who was in charge of the Dutch colony, welcomed the Kerry team with open arms. Now, the British Governor General distrusted all publications and tried to shut them down. So here was a missionary press operating before their very eyes, but beyond their reach. See, that policy did not change until William Wilberforce and like-minded ministers of parliament forced the British government to acknowledge their moral obligation to allow education to flourish in their colonies. This press in Sarampur became the epicenter for the translation of the Bible into many Indian languages and printing and publication of educational material.
The printing press made literature commonplace and brought literacy to the masses. William Carey spent 41 years in India. During this time, he translated the whole Bible or portions of the scripture into 29 different languages. His motto was, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Dr. Verghese's research led him to the countryside of uh, Northamshire, to a street named Carey Road. Here in the, he writes, here in the corner of the street, you will notice a small heap of stones with an inscription. This is part of the cottage of William Carey, born 17th August, 1761. Died in India on 9th June, 1834. He writes, unfortunately, this is all the memorial you will see to one of England's greatest sons, but India will always be grateful for his outstanding missionary, to this outstanding missionary for his sacrifice to India. See, Let There Be India is uh, Dr. Babu K. Verghese's thesis on the impact of the Bible on all aspects of life in modern India. As he concludes, he writes, and I quote, a basic guide for any Christian conduct in any sphere is the greatest commandment to love God totally and to love the neighbor as oneself. Where Christians live in a democracy, they share with all citizens the privilege of political power and therefore have the greater responsibility that justice characterizes it. As a guidebook, the Bible remains key to education because it is a, it is a library a unique selection of books selection, selected with extreme care. The 66 books of the traditional Bible were written by at least 40 authors over 1,600 years in three different languages, yet it tells one story. This narrative begins with creation and ends with recreation. The amazing feature of this, li this library is that its books give an expanding progressive yet coherent view of the world. It presents a consistent yet unfolding worldview that explains reality and the human situation. It gives purpose to the absurd looking life, meaning to the human quest for morals and hope in the face of awful evil. It inspires faith in God in a universe that seems to be governed by random chance, if not capricious fate or fortune. Monks studied it because the Bible asked them to seek the knowledge of truth. See, the Old Testament has some great stories. Do the stories of the Old Testament have any bearing on my life in 2021? The answer is yes. There are things we can learn from the pages of the Old Testament that are relevant for us today. The Bible brings light to our life. God is interested in each one of us. He continues to teach and mold me using the stories in the Old Testament to shine a light in the dark corners of my life. God loves me, this I know. 
That is why he sent his son to die on the cross. He loves me enough to keep on teaching me lessons from the Bible. The question is, am I willing to listen? Am I willing to listen? Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us. We pray, Father, that it would motivate us, encourage us, and build us up. Continue to protect us, Father, we pray, through everything that we are going through. We know that you, are, you will always be at our side, as you were with the prophets of old, as, as you've shown in the stories of old. Be with us, Father, as we go out from here. Be with us in the things that we are, we are going to do this today and this week. Guide us, Father, in everything that we do. We give you the praise and glory today. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.